You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate, we're here to listen, we're here to process, and we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not gonna do. We're not gonna be preachy because we don't have all the answers and we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person, and that starts with our personal, personal check-in. Check in. Let's do it. And we're back. We're back again. We're back. We're back. I have a little scratchy throat this morning. Yeah, it might I don't know. Be. I just wanted to say that for my listeners. They might think it's a sexy voice, but it's not. It just woke up kind of. <laughs> kind of maybe fall. It's fall, I think. It might be the new huh? microphone we're using. Oh, the new mics. What? I know. Okay, once again, our listeners are at a disadvantage because they can't see um, microphones. Get back to the point. Amazing. So they pick up on on a lot more things, maybe. I don't know. So we we can't. We had to make sure we're not we're not going to sneeze uh, or anything. We're like just that. professionals now. It's official we that we have yeah. moved into a new realm of professionalism. It was kind of an arc, right? We've been on this COVID roller coaster. Of we were recording in person with fancy microphones, and then we went to to Zoom only. And so I was literally recording in my closet at home. That's right. He, re- he really was recording you know, in his no closet. No one wanted that video footage, right? But now as COVID continues to linger on, we're like, well, we can't, we probably need to pivot a little. Step again. Up. We yeah. need an upgrade. We yeah. got it. We need this to settle in. Good. We need to settle in for the ice age, right? This isn't a blizzard. This is an ice age. And so we yeah. need to invest accordingly. So, hey, thanks for going on the journey with us. podcast. And I dare any listener to tell us that they can't tell the difference because we're so hype about these mics that I need you all to tell us how amazing we sound today, even if you don't mean it. Please mention when you rate, rate, review and subscribe, mention the audio quality, like give us five stars and be like, hey, I love what you're saying and how you say it. I love the tech. I digress. Yes. It's personal Mm -hmm. check-in time. What are we doing? I'm, I'm getting... I'm getting off track. Usually you, you need to rein me in here. All right. I do. Yeah. Uh, so we'll do quick check-ins. Yeah, quick quick check-in. Quick check-in. Tell, tell our listeners, how, how are you doing since we last talked? I'm good. You know, I, um, I'm continuing to enjoy the fall and the season change. How are you, friend? I'm, I'm good. I, we talk about self-care a lot. I'm, I'm still searching for that balance of of what that looks like. I've tried, I've tried different things. So if, if our listeners have any tips for me, that would be great. I, I would love for this to turn more into a two-way conversation. I'm now going to welcome on our guest today. So excited, man, season two. Wow. We are just honored by the people who have said yes to talking to us, Jess. Like how it feels, it feels amazing. I, I mean, I, I cannot wait for our listeners to hear all the conversations that we're, that we're having right now. And today is no exception. <laughs> so, so excited to welcome onto the podcast, Michaelia Davis. Michaelia, are you there today? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Hi, how are you all doing? Hi, we're good. We're so glad you're joining us from New York. Yes, yes. you're in New York. From wow. Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, it's such an honor. As Rob said, this is really cool. Super fun. It's super fun to have these like very thoughtful and important conversations and to meet new friends in the work and along the way. So we're really glad you're here. And um, I will be LinkedIn-ing with you soon and we'll, we'll keep this keep this relationship going. I love it. Okay, Rob, go ahead. Your first, uh, I think. Well, yeah. I will, I'll, I'm going to get into Michaela's <laughs> show in just a second, but I'll say as a precursor, 
I threw a Hail Mary here because I, I, you know, as we've been planning out season two, we just been tuning in to what's happening, you know, thought leadership around the country, who is speaking to this current moment well and, and thoughtfully and challenging, but in accessible ways. And I, I stumbled upon Michaela's article, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. I won't, I won't spoil it, but, you know, you know, impromptu just shot her a message and said, hey, you know, I do this podcast with my friend and would love it, would be honored if you were willing to join us to talk through this article more, because I think our listeners would value so much hearing more of your insight. And she replied back immediately. I was like, this is amazing. Wow. It's so overjoyed. Usually the people we're talking to and you tend to be local here and you'll have a passion for the Bull City, right? Or as a conversation that Jess and I were recently part of the 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 best city with two horns, right? Isn't that uh, oh, okay. what right. our friend, friend right. referred to? Amazing. Uh, yeah. I don't know what other cities have two horns, so it's kind of feels like they're not really <laughs> but yeah. anyway, Michaela, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I want to introduce her to our listeners, and then we're going to jump right in. And so Michaela Davis serves as the program director of the Inclusive Economies Program at the Certina Foundation, overseeing a $9.2 million grant-making portfolio that seeks to create an equitable economy in which people of color can maximize their potential as leaders, creators, and innovators across sectors. She has spent 15 years at the intersection of public and private systems to drive social and economic opportunity for communities across the United States. All right. And hopefully after listening to that, you're as, as excited as we are to welcome Michaela onto the show. So Michaela, you were listening into our personal check-in, all the nonsense that we usually do to warm up these conversations. We do that intentionally because we believe in the power of relationships. The change happens at the speed of trust. And so would love for our listeners to just to hear a little bit more about who you are and your story. And so if you would, tell us a little bit more about you, your story, and, and what led you to be doing the work that you're doing now. Yeah, thank you again for, for having me here. This is such a a great uh, podcast and what you're focused on is so necessary. More spaces to have these kinds of conversations. You know, I'm here, I'm in Brooklyn, New York for listeners um, in terms of geographically where I'm at. Um, I grew up here, spent a few, little bit, a little bit of time in a few other places, which I think was actually really helpful to my understanding of the world. So moving from a child uh, from Crown Heights, Brooklyn to Portland, Oregon, um, and then, and then moving back. So it was that kind of uh, diversity growing up was wow. actually quite interesting. You learn culture shock really early on as, as a young child. But yeah, so Professionally, I work at CERTNA, as you described, and have been kind of in philanthropy for uh, several years. But my entire career, really, the way I think about my who I am and what brought me to do this work is really centered around trying to better understand my family's opportunities. And I think very early on, my mom and that side of the family is our Caribbean immigrants. And my father is from Philly by way of South Carolina, a Black American. And I think I just remember you know, my grandmother cleaning people's homes, uh, wealthier people's homes when I was younger and my aunts doing the same and actually going to their homes sometimes and, and seeing and trying to understand as a young child, like, why is it that some people have all of these nice things and live in this very different neighborhood than the, the studio apartment that my, my mom, my grandmother and I uh, lived in. And, and I think those kinds of experiences um, as a child, you know, you start to ask questions. And so throughout my adult life, I've really spent my 
career focusing on how do we actually give people agency, choice, you know, what dictates who has access to economic opportunity, right? As I got older, asking those types of questions. So I spent time early on in my career working at uh, social impact organizations, training young people to work in industries where they're underrepresented on Wall Street, thinking about how we think about the policies, um, working at think tanks, and then working at both family, large family foundations and corporate foundations, really thinking about how we connect and build the infrastructure that's necessary for people to get access to opportunities. So I've kind of been thinking about this from many different points and um, nothing has made that more true as I've been able and privileged to work from home during COVID, right? And who gets to who gets to enjoy working from home and, and who doesn't? And, you know, as I sit here with my, my little dog, Sheba, um, she might make a cameo appearance for the listeners. Um, I've just been thinking a lot about in terms of how I'm doing today, I've been thinking a lot about just how we remain centered and, and I've been focusing on gratitude because I know we're going into a really crazy fall with a high stakes election and all types of other things. So um, that's how I'm doing today. And that's a little bit about, about me. Mm, I love that. We all have complex answers these days, right? Yeah. To how are we doing? Yeah. I don't think that, I mean, if you just take the year ago today, it was fine, we're good and keep moving, right? But like now there are layers of how are we really doing? How are the people around us doing? What are we grateful for as compared to others in our community, how we're doing? So many things. I, I love that answer. Thank you for that. Okay, Michaelia, you wrote an article, which was the impetus for us getting the chance to get to know you and have you here with us today, which is incredible. This article was published in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it was uh, published in July. So it's sort of hot off the presses. And we'll make sure this is all in the show notes so that people can read the full article. It was entitled, Risks for the Future We Want. Philanthropists must learn from protesters and reimagine the formula for making change on racial justice. So good and provocative, right? Just the title alone. All right. So you've been working in this space for 15 years. Um, and in the article, you share why this topic is personal for you with a story of the time when you bought your first home and you were stopped twice by police. Right. One of those instances you were stopped in when you were stopped, you were questioned for having black trash bags in your car um, yep. that you were actually used for moving. Right. That police officer was a person of color. Yes. In that instance. So yes. you use that example to highlight the fact that and you quote this diversity and inclusion are not going to solve the problem. I can't wait to talk about this. <laughs> diversity and inclusion are not going to solve the problem. They're not enough to rebuild a more just and equitable economy. They don't go far enough. So that is counterintuitive to what yeah. we've been talking about all across every headline, in boardrooms, yeah. everywhere I go. This is a yeah. counterintuitive statement. So help us unpack for our listeners who are hearing all of this about DNI. What do, what do you mean by that? What are we talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I so appreciate this question because I think for some folks, especially having been a person who's done DNI work in the past, um, you know, it can be, it can feel like an affront to <laughs> everything that they've studied work and focused on, right? Um, so what I mean by that is if you think about the kind of what's been termed, I think people use the term racial reckoning that we're going through in America and not just in America, right? Like globally this summer, we saw massive uprisings across the globe. And I think, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to dismiss that 
those uprisings don't account for the need for more diversity. They do. And, and, and diversity and inclusion are good things, right? Diversity is about, you know, how are we making sure that we have, you know, again, different folks, because we have different folks in our society. We have different people, different cultures, different ethnicities. It's about representation and how are we making sure that there is diverse representation in our communities in different ways, whether it's who's making decisions, right? Because if you're in a community, you should be a part of that decision-making structure. And inclusion in many, in my respect, is really about who who then gets agency and choice, who, who actually can then use their representation, right, to have some type of power or say. The reason I say that that's insufficient is because you can have both of those things, but if you don't actually address the underlying, you know, what actually is driving racism at its core is about power. You know, racism, the reason why people, I think, get confused about racism oftentimes is because they're, they're focused on the discrimination part of it. But the discrimination part is not what makes it racism. What makes it racism is that discrimination and bias combined with power. Mm. And if we are unable to actually unpack and examine how power shows up in our systems, in our communities, who has it, who gets to wield it, who gets to decide who has power, then we're not really changing anything. You can get people of color who may not necessarily believe that we all should have agency and power. They may still operate in, a, in an anti-blackness right, framework um, because in racism, you know, not to take us on a whole different conversation, we could spend a whole lot of time just talking just about racism. But when you delve into like how racism operates and how it is perpetuated, it, it really surrounds this notion of, you know, there's a hierarchy of who gets to have that, who gets to have power. And that hierarchy puts black people at the bottom. So you can be another person of color and exercise that hierarchy of power and oppress other people of color, including black people. So that that's the point that I was hoping to make in in sharing my experience because it was, you know, as a but when when people talk about being black in America, it isn't just about it isn't just about the the color of our skin. It's what the color of our skin what what we experience because of the color of our skin that and it, and that experience is the power dynamic that i'm speaking of and being stripped of it mm. oftentimes mm. thank you wow yeah. so good so good i do i did want us to go down that tangent but i was like okay <laughs> back on the highway but that was so that was really really good that is on on point that that is the conversation it feels like the consistent theme that keeps coming up this yeah. season for us is what are we going to do about power what do, what do we do with power? We're going to have several guests that, that come at this from different angles, but I, I think that you are, you're, you're highlighting some really important points for us here and it's layered. I mean, this, this is a, this is a layered, layered conversation and you're, you're yeah, doing, absolutely. You're helping us unpack this so well and for our listeners, but this idea that discrimination combined with power, I mean, that, that you have to kind of have both of those conversations and when it comes to D&I, diversity and inclusion efforts, you know, diversity, diversity of who's at the table, right, is in and of itself is not a bad thing. Diver let's no. diversify the table. Yes, of course. But yes. a theme of this, this podcast is very much this both and thinking, right? Not an either or. Let's diversify who's at the table, but also ask the question, who owns the table? And and can I just say so? I want to just make that explicitly clear. Like D and I is is necessary work. Like you you have to take. I think oftentimes 
to get to the point where you're really unpacking racism, oftentimes DNI can be a doorway for an institution in particular to begin to unpack like what are the challenges. But it's not gonna get you across the the finish line, so to speak, if there is a if there is a finish line. And I and I think that the analysis around power is is so much more complicated, right? Because then you're talking about all kinds, that's where things like intersectional identities come up. Um, you know, that's where you start to layer in systemic thinking. It's a bit, it's hard work, but but it's the work that we have to do to understand why two things can be true at the same time. Uh, you can have diverse representation and still have racism. <laughs> so, you know, that's why we have to do this work. So yeah, I just wanted to reiterate the importance of DNA. Yeah. yeah, thank you. And I think in our cultural moment, uh, and I don't know how long it's been this way, but it does feel this tension of anytime you make a statement, it feels pitted against another statement. And, and it feels like you're forced to choose a side and say either one, this is true or this is true. And I think that clearly that is not what you're saying here. We're not pitting DNI against the idea that we need to have a more agency and more choice for more people for the flourishing of all, right? You're saying, hey, I think a gateway, an entryway, that, that's a great analogy to unpack that this idea of not only who's at the table, but who owns the table. So in, in this article, you go on to say, taking risk has always been a part of the formula for change and securing racial justice will require risks like never before. If we don't fundamentally reimagine our relationship to risk, which dictates who we fund as funders right, and how aggressively we address systemic barriers, we will be doomed to repeat the results of the past. We can give more money, but we also must also change the way we give. We must accept that without addressing racism's systemic roots, and here it is again, power, ownership, and capital, the targets will keep moving. To eliminate the interconnected systems that allow racism to plague the world, we, philanthropy, and impact investors must build a new lexicon for risk and stronger muscles for taking it. Okay, man. There, <laughs> so good. That was, that was, there's a lot there. There's a lot there to unpack. And and man, you are you are a gifted writer. Uh, let me just say. So thank you. There there is so much there. I feel like that's its own like mini micro essay that I just kind of need to sit with for a week and just like study one line at a time. But so that phrasing kind of sets up the six ways that you that the article centers around that that we can reckon risk and act for racial equity is how you introduce that. So we, we won't read out all of them. Everyone obviously hopefully is inspired by now to go and read the article for yourself. We encourage you to do that. It will be in the show notes, but you lead out with point one of get comfortable with being uncomfortable, which should for our listeners feel like a familiar phrase that we, we talk about, you know, one of the values of this podcast being the, the power of getting proximate. That as borrowed from Brian Stevenson language here, you know, as most of the good things out of my mouth are borrowed. But could you just speak more to that point and, and why that matters, why you led with it, right, as point one, and then just why, why that is so important to accomplishing the things that you laid out in the article? Yeah, I think if you're trying, anytime you're trying to change anything, like let's just let's just break it all the way, like the most simplest thing, like racism is so complex. So even if let's, let's, let's put racism to the side for a second. And if we say something simple, like even if it's something very simple, like losing weight or something like that in our lives, right? Like something very tangible. 
anytime you start the, a process to change something in your life, to change the way you think about uh, the food you eat, uh, the time that you spend, um, maybe it's like, you know, I'm sitting here washing dishes. Maybe while I'm washing dishes, I can do squats. That's uncomfortable. Like at its most micro level, there is a, there is discomfort in change mm -hmm. because we are human <laughs> and we like routines. We like the familiar, right? And so when it comes to even, if you take that micro example and now you know, snowball it and put some gum on it and stick it on a wall and take it down and run it down the street. That's race. Racism is so much more of a bigger, more complex issue. And so you have to accept that you are going to experience discomfort and you, things are not going to be routine because you're actually challenging yourself to, to look at a, a set of systems, a set of norms that we have held for a very long time and say, well, well, how is this serving us or not? Or, you know, how is it that we've done all of these diversity efforts or we've done all these things, but we're still facing this problem? That means we're going to have to ask ourselves different questions. We're going to have to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations. And to be honest, there's a lot of, um, when it comes to race in America, I mean, I don't think I need to send this to the two of you. I mean, we don't like talking about race. We kind of, you know, we're conditioned really, to be honest, to avoid conversations about race. I'm not a, I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist, but I would say that if you just, just looking in my own life and experiences, and this is not, to be honest, it's not just among white folks or, you know, it, it, even among people of color in communities of color, sometimes yeah. people don't feel comfortable talking about race. And so I do think that a big part of this, before you can even do this work, you have to start with, I'm going to be uncomfortable. Let me just sit with that and be okay with the reality that there are going to be some uncomfortable moments. And I, I say this to my team all the time. I'm like, whenever I feel in a meeting, we're having what I call a, a shoulders up meeting is like, let's take a moment and let's bring shoulders down because that will even happen among us who are doing this work deep in this work all the time because of our personal experiences. We all come to the table with our family lineage, our you know cultural upbringing, the communities we grew up in. Um, the friends we've made through school and work and other, and all of those things, I do believe will either reinforce what we understand about race or not. And so that makes it even more uncomfortable because then it feels like we're challenging our, our relationships sometimes. That's kind of why I wanted to start there because I think it's an important starting point. Yeah, that's that's good. I, I appreciate the shoulders up moment. I'm going to be using that. I will definitely give you credit, but that was a good one. I was like, ooh, I, really, I know those moments. And you do have to be uncomfortable and I think you also have to get comfortable being uncommon. It's something that I say, you, you're going to be standing out. Mm, yeah. You're going to be the one who makes the room feel a little, some kind of shoulders up way sometimes yeah. because you have to stand on your principles and what you're learning, be a little more authentic, talk about your own experience in new ways or the, for the first time, you know, <clears throat> oftentimes connecting your own experience to what's happening in the outside world. We don't often do. We just participate as observers. And kind of stepping into how it really affects us gives mm -hmm. us that opportunity to be uncomfortable and uncommon, but for change, something for yeah. good. Yeah. Can I just say one more thing on the change? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I would encourage listeners to actually think about anything that they know in their lives that has ever changed without discomfort. I just think that's a helpful, just, I ask myself this question almost every day. Anyways, we can keep going. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> 
We're going to bring that back up in our show up moment. <laughs> I know I saw Rob. I was like, that's coming back up. <laughs> so good. Right. 75 hard, 24 days in, right? There is a, there you go. All, of that. all right. Let's talk about philanthropy. Let's talk about all this money that's being deployed, tossed around um, in the world of philanthropy. You talk about the billions of dollars that grant makers have invested and continue to invest in nonprofits year over year. But we all know, and you lay it out, that the white black wealth gap is the same as 1968. Mm-hmm. So here you talk about change over time. Mm-hmm. Great indicator. You also referenced in this concept here, you referenced that a recent report from Bridgespan that points out that not only do people of color-led nonprofits receive less funding, which we've talked about in an earlier podcast, unrestricted assets of white-led nonprofits were 76% higher than those that were people of color-led, 76% greater than mm-hmm. those that were people of color-led. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Michaelia? Talk to us, talk to our listeners about this statistic. Why is it so important? And unpack that for us. And then how do you think we can disrupt this trend? This is just such a big indicator. It's a temperature of disparity. So how do do you think we could disrupt this trend? Yeah, that statistic is very troubling for me personally um, as a grant maker of color. And, you know, I think what it says is it goes back to our first when we first first started this conversation, we talked about power. So if you have three quarters of your your you have three quarters more unrestricted assets, which means just to just to actually explain what that means, it means that you know as a nonprofit you're you are either given you're given funding for either something very specific like a project grant or you're given some unrestricted general operating funds, and what that means is you get agency, you have power and choice to say, here's an issue I'm focusing on. Here's how we're experiencing it. Oh, we need to pivot because X, Y, and Z happened out here in the universe. Let's change strategies. You can do that when you have unrestricted net assets. You can take advantage of resources or new tools that you discover. You can jump on a campaign or Take advantage of an opportunity that comes your way to further advance your mission in a much more nimble and adaptive way than an organization who is only getting, one, less money, two, and that money is project specific, which means that you're pigeon-held into one way of operating. You can't actually grow, flex, or change. And if you actually think about, well, if a nonprofit is trying to solve something like economic justice or supporting entrepreneurs or, you know, name an issue, it's kind of like they're doing it with one hand tied behind their back. Like if you can't actually pivot to address the issues that come up when you're trying to solve a complex problem, like these are complex issues, right? And so if you have groups who are organizing, who are running coalitions, who are building movements, that's a lot of working around systems, that's relationship building, that is very much influenced by time and what's happening in any moment in time in that community. And so how do you do that if if you can only do the five deliverables that you had to write to a foundation for a very time-limited project grant? So I think that, that what that disparity tells us is people of color-led organizations are not getting the type of resources that they need to build the movements and sustain the movements by adapting to what's necessary in their communities. And I think how we change it 
I want to give kudos to, you know, some in philanthropy who have been really pushing for this conversation for a long time. Edgar Villanueva, who I think you all know probably well, and the Decolonizing Wealth, I think is a good a good book around this. You know, and and the affinity groups. I mentioned the Association for Black Foundation Executives in the article and Abfi's kind of work around how do you think about and support more organizations led by people of color. I think it's I think it's education and on the part in philanthropy to think about, to do better and think about how to do better. I think it's also, it's also talent pipeline. I think that there's been a very severe lack of diversity in leadership or decision-making roles of people of color in philanthropy. I think that's part of the problem as well. And then I think, to be honest, this gets back to a point we were making previously where even then diversity and inclusion may not be sufficient. It's making sure that when we are thinking about who we're funding, are we applying the same lens that we've always been using to say, how do we determine what is valid and credible? You know, a lot of folks of color, I think, led organizations, if they are more grassroots and or community-based, they're spending their time building relationships and doing the work in the field. They're not spending, you know, hours necessarily on the fanciest PowerPoint deck. And if that's what, if the litmus test is, this is credible because there are, you know, 60 slides that are full of data that we probably could have researched ourselves. Like, I I don't know that that anything is going to change, right? And so I think part of what I also hope to make clear is that how we choose what is credible and valid also has to change. Because if all you're going to do is repeat the same pattern of investment, you're actually not going to support the things that will create sustainable change, build the relationships, build the networks, and, and so on. This is great. I, uh, Rob, I know you have the next question, but I was so much of this is like, so this power thing shows up in this question and in this statistic in ways that like are visceral for me. And I just, there's a trust issue here. I feel like there's code when you think about that funding that just lack the, the gap in that funding to me demonstrates a lack of trust, which is just like code. Sometimes we'll hear like, people of color led organizations, we're taking a risk on them, yes. which is code for, we don't want that power to shift. We don't trust the yeah. work, which is which can boil down to racist and um, yeah. structures, deeply rooted racist systems. I So like there's so much there just in laying out a quick statistic around that disparity is really, and you said troubling, and that is very troubling. And I think mm-hmm. we need to, dig into that and say, why? Somebody said to me, you know, ask why five times. Why, 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 why? Wasn't that (laughs) one of our podcasts? I ask why five times, right? As an engineer. And you have to ask, and then you ask it again, and then you ask it again. And when it starts to get uncomfortable, you ask it one more time. Then you go one more time and face the truth around that stuff because people of color-led organizations are more proximate to the problems and the challenges in our community. That's a, that's a true statement. And so for them to have lack of funding or resources or to fight or have to prove over and over and over again, because they're risky, write yeah. it again, tell me more. You know, it takes forever to yeah. gain trust when a, not a white-led organization, nonprofit that has the big name and the fleet of grant writers 
doesn't have to expend any of that energy yeah. to, to be able to secure funding and may not and likely isn't potentially as proximate to the issues that mm-hmm. are that are facing the community and certainly aren't being led by somebody who looks like them. So I was a little bit of a rant. You're welcome to take it out of the podcast if you want, but I'm so <laughs> bothered by the trust factor because it's it's huge. I mean, it's hurtful. It's hurtful. It, it, it is because it speaks to it speaks to. Do you see me as? Yeah. Do you see me as whole? Do you see me as human? Yeah. Do you see me as with dignity? Right. And I think that it's the same. It shows up everywhere. It shows up in the entrepreneurship space. It's why yes. it's why people of color, why entrepreneurs of color are funded less, even if they have. You know, we've had study after study. Right? They'll have the same credentials. They'll have the same financial background. They'll have the same educational training, yeah. and, and they will get more questions. <laughs> they will get more ridiculous questions. Yep. So I've heard from entrepreneurs um, that have participated in the accelerators that we fund, you know, they've heard all kinds of things where people ask them randomly about like, well, why would you choose to start a business? Like, and, and know that like, I'm sorry, what? Like, like, yep. and, and, and it'd be taken totally out of context, like being in a pitch competition and seeing the person before them go with a weaker pitch and not be asked that question. And then they stand up and, be, and are asked some ridiculous question. It is trust. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think what we choose, how we decide who we trust is based on these values that are rooted in Race, like so white supremacy, I just have to name it. White supremacy has guided a lot of our value frameworks in this country in particular. And last thing I'll just say, and, and to this point, to the extent that, you know, in, in a lot of Black communities, if you take it all the way down to, again, going micro, you know, folks who have chosen to, for instance, name their children very... I'll say bland for a lack of a term, but mm-hmm. names that they think will be culturally ambiguous because they do not, they, they want to sound as close to white or neutral as possible, which, you know, back in the day, you know, my, my great grandmother used to say, you know, because white is right. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, that's what we see yeah. in terms of who makes decisions. So excuse me for going all the way off the rails here, but I just think that when you brought up the issue of trust, it's that trust oftentimes who we trust and why we trust people is still even shaped by these norm values that puts black people at the bottom. There is literally a hierarchy and puts white folks at the top. So it shows up in every system. Everywhere. Yeah. I, I think I speak on behalf of our listeners that, that no apologies are necessary here because this is, you're taking the conversation to exactly where it needs to go, which is to the root. And that, that's another theme of this podcast. When Jess and I started this, we, we always committed to each other that we would we'd press in and dig deep you know, down to the root of what's really going on and not just, not just keep the, the conversation on the surface. But, and I love the way you framed it, you know, this concept of asking why you know, five times and getting uncomfortable and then asking it again and just naming the fact that it's so much about trust. And mm-hmm. I, it reminds me of this quote that I heard uh, a while back. I, I can't even remember who to attribute this to. And I've tried Googling it because I know I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due, but it's so powerful and names what you're talking about so, so well, but those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but often furthest from the resources and the power. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it feels like that is this, that is this proximity issue of how philanthropy often gets it backwards. Right. And when you talk about who we trust with money and how much discretion and agency and choice we let them have when it comes to 
to wealth, oftentimes in white hands being transferred to black and brown hands, you know, to be able to have the freedom because we see you as whole, right? Right. To be able to have the agency to spend that money and build and make the decisions to address the problems that are in your own community, like Mm -hmm. not even affecting my community, but they're in your own community to solve them. It comes down to these root questions you're talking about. It comes down to trust. It comes down to this, this shifting of the lens or the mental model that Jess and I talk about. And it goes back to that first question of talking about the table. And the decision, you answered it so beautifully. And decision makers, we've got to change the lens of who's making the decision so that they see clearly. We also need to change who's at the table making the decisions. Yeah. Because that, that is at play here too. And we can't just, otherwise we're going to keep funding who has the best graphic design. That's, I mean, essentially, I think that's kind of how we got to where we, I mean, that's, I mean um, you know, I'm being a little, little facetious here, but I, I do think it, Rashad Robinson of Color of Change articulates this really well. He talks about, you know, how we're so willing to like buy bottles of water for the name of charity in Flint, right? For the folks struggling without clean water, as opposed to funding the community organizers who are mobilizing people to be a part of the local maybe election system and push for better policies that will allocate resources to change the actual, you know, utility system. Like, I think that articulation, and he uses that example often, I think it, it encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about here. Because the folks who are, you know, doing the mobilizing um, on the ground and spending their efforts actually engaging in community and showing up at, at meetings, at council meetings and other things, they're not going to sit, you know, I just feel like they, that's what we should be funding, right? And, and I think they, the song and dance that we ask them to go through to do that work is oftentimes very unnecessary. <laughs> That's a powerful illustration. You know, this idea of handing out water bottles versus fixing the the utility system that produces the toxic water, right? And I, I, uh, that, that says it all. And I think I, I've used this example before, you know, here at ReCity in Durham is just talking about, yes, it's a both end, right? It's a both end. I mean, are, are handing out water bottles bad? No. But no, it, absolutely it, not. It's the problem <laughs> actually eliminate it so we're not having to hand out water bottles anymore. And so it's this idea of everyone knows the, you know, this concept of, you know, Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving, we want to talk about giving out turkeys to people who are, mm-hmm. are hungry on Thanksgiving. Yeah. But again, this is the five why rule, asking why are they in line in the first place? Why is it always consistently the same people and actually addressing the issue of food insecurity that causes them to be in the line in the first place? That's right. Very, That's right. Should we, I mean, should we let people go hungry? On any day of the year, or including Thanksgiving, no. Like we should work. Let's do the both and work because mm-hmm. the and is often left out because the and is harder. Asking yeah. those third, second, asking why the second, third, fourth, and fifth time, it takes you way towards discomfort because we Real don't fast. <laughs> we don't want to reckon with the answers to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I. It's it, that distinction between funding and i think that's a journey that philanthropy has been on over for many years is shifting from supporting programs to actually thinking about changing systems and even still i mean approaching systems change as a grant making practice i think is a hard thing for 
some foundations to do because it's less about your name. It's hard to write an annual report about, <laughs> you know, all of the different coalitions and here's all the, the you know, the, the policies maybe they proposed or, and, and that change takes time. So it's not going to show up in an annual report, right? But you can certainly in your annual report talk about how many bottles of water you gave away and feel really good about that. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm not, I don't mean to, I'm not downplaying the importance of charity. Charity is important. We need that. Um, we need to take care of each other as humans, right, in this society. And that should always happen. But it's not a replacement for actual, like changing a system and for strategic philanthropy. So I just want to, I just want to uplift what you're sharing here. What you're saying is ch- charity is not a replacement for justice. And, and I think no. both are necessary. And I think we've, we've hit on that theme before in previous episodes. I think about just the, the conversation with, with Dorian Burton. Uh, yeah. I want to name an example of someone who really yeah. epitomizes what it means to, to take a holistic approach to the things we're talking about and give leaders, specifically leaders of color-led organizations, the freedom and the agency and, and the choice to to em- empower their own communities. Uh, man, I, I can't, can't think of a better one, but yeah, no, Dorian is great. We're a big fan. Uh, man, we, we need to get all together. That, that's another podcast episode. We do a reunion show. Uh, get, 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 get people back together for part two of this conversation. But So landing the plane here, uh, Michaela, we, so you're, you're, you're laying out, you've laid out such a compelling vision for us and our listeners here. And it is, it is ambitious. It is, it is truthful. It's got teeth. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of a better way to describe it. But also, it can feel, I mean, especially for me, I'm, I'm hearing it, and our listeners are hearing it, you almost feel like a, a weight starts to begin pressing in as our conversation ends, and we start thinking about uh, where do we go from here, right? So I think it would be helpful in these times, we always like to ask this question for our guests of, what is your why when it starts to, when the weight of this starts to trickle mm. into your day-to-day, and it starts to press in, and the discouragement sinks in, what gives you hope, and what is your fuel that keeps you going? Because we know that saying all this is one thing, going out and hanging up on this call and going about it, getting up, what do you say, Jen? Get, getting about the work, be about it. Be about uh, it, yeah. <laughs> being about it is a lot harder. And so how, what is your fuel? What is your why that motivates you to keep going, especially on those days where, you know, maybe it's hard to cling to that hope that things are going to actually change? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I often times uh, have to... Uh, pause and remind myself of the why to be honest and this this is um this is there are two things that i think i i often find inspiration and it's the past i think a lot about about our ancestors like collectively like humanity's ancestors <laughs> i think i i do i i um i think i shared earlier i write like short stories um i'm inspiring uh, creative fiction writer, um, and and when I I read a lot of of fiction nonfiction, and I think I'm always in the in the parts where you know history is woven through a lot of historical fictions that I read. I'm just always just so inspired by all of the things that we've accomplished as humans, right? If you actually were to to just sit with it for a moment, and an example is 50 years ago, I, I wouldn't be on this podcast with you all or, or the, the equivalent radio version. Um, <laughs> you know, um, so we've come, we've come pretty far. And I think sometimes it's hard to hold on to that because we, we may take that for granted. But I always remind myself, even looking at my own family and, you know, my grandmother's journey 
um, and my mom's journey as, as immigrants. And I think about what the sacrifices that they made. And I, and then the second thing is I think about, well, what are the sacrifices I'm willing to make for future generations? Mm. Um, and I think, and I look at the young people who are in my life, that's the other source of information. Like, let's actually think about like what's happening with young people right now. Like they are mobilized, they are energized, they are pushing conversations at the dinner table um, that are making their parents uncomfortable. They are, you know, um, deciding to maybe shop differently um, because they want their values to be aligned with everything that they do, not just, you know, the, the volunteer engagement. And I think that that's, that's what fuels me. You know, those two things, when I think about our ancestors and I think about the young people of today, I, I recognize we can always change. We can, and we will. We just have to be, I guess, both patient and and urgent. <laughs> yeah, and consistent and persistent. And consistent, and, yes, yeah, absolutely. Which I think this time is that is a test. We, you know, we keep hearing that that this time that we're in is a test around endurance. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. having these conversations. There's a new generation that's passionate, as you said. We've mm-hmm. seen change over time historically. I love that you said the collective ancestors spoke to me on a lot of levels. I just think that's that's right, right? And what's our responsibility mm-hmm. while we're here? Michaelia, as we land the plane, our listeners are accustomed to a moment at the end of the show where we ask um, our guest to give them a tip or a an encouragement or a charge, mostly, mm-hmm. on how to show up around this topic or around this work. And we've covered so much territory that it's sort of like, what topic are we asking them to show up? But um, so I'm actually thinking as I'm asking this question, like, you know, how do I drive this question home for our listeners? Like, how do they show up? And I, I don't know that it needs to be beautifully framed. I'm, I'm more maybe interested today in a final thought or a takeaway that you want to offer our listeners as it relates to all that we've sort of talked through and maybe a reflective question you had asked earlier, but maybe there's a reflective question that they can take and that we can take, Rob and I can, as we go into next week's podcast, something that we can think through in the next week and and share back with our listeners. So I, I don't know if there's anything on your mind, but I'd love to turn this last little bit over to you to talk to our listeners directly. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I just really appreciate the opportunity to join uh, Rob and Jess, the two of you just in this conversation. It's so, I think this is so critical, just the exploration of ideas, right? Of, you know, how ideas shape the world. And and actually on that note, I will say really quickly, this past weekend, or maybe it was yesterday, was uh, the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman, who was an economist who wrote an essay that profoundly changed the way capitalism actually worked in this, in, in not just in this country, but globally, that has got, brought us to where we are today, that his essay at the core of it was about shareholder privacy and the, the focus of business is just to make money. That's it. And that one essay changed everything. And so I say that because ideas matter. Ideas matter so much. They matter because on a personal level, what we think about translates into what we do. But if we have networks, if we have access, what we think about and our ideas can actually inform and change the world. So what, you know, what I would encourage listeners who are here uh, listening to this podcast to think about is what are the ideas that you're holding around justice? 
around racism, around just creating a better society in your own kind of microcosm of the universe, within your family, within your friends network. Um, Because I think oftentimes when we think about complex issues, we want to tackle the big thing. But in reality, it's right here in front of us, right? It's, Hmm. It's the conversations we have with our parents or with our significant other or others. And I, and I think, you know, what are the ideas that are, that are being circulated in those spaces and how do you engage in them? How do you challenge them? How do you ask why five times, right? And start right there. Start where you are and in your community uh, because ideas really do matter. Great. Thank you. Thank you for that history lesson too on capitalism. I was like, Milton Friedman, I know that name. I didn't, that was, that's right. Ideas do matter. Look where we are today. Thanks, Milton. Um, (laughs) So good. Uh, Okay. Well, this has been a gift to me. Um, We do our podcast on Tuesday. This is definitely going to be the highlight for my Tuesday. I took two pages of notes, just really enjoyed the conversation I enjoyed how you think about this work and social justice. I appreciate you for the many years that you have committed your time and talent clearly in this world and in this work because you could have chosen to do anything. You're clearly brilliant and you are making a real difference in your work. So yeah, no, we are better for it. And I mean that. And I just enjoyed getting a chance to meet you and really appreciate your thought leadership. Continue to write, continue to challenge continue to ask questions and force people to ask the answer them, right? Like it's great. Writing does that. I, like you said, ideas matter. And today your ideas really mattered for me personally. And I won't speak for Rob, but I know I can. And for Rob personally, he's doing hard head nods over here and for our listeners. So truly a gift, truly a gift. Thank you. Thank you. We're, we're so honored to have this conversation with you and, and to echo what Jess said. I mean, your, your ideas matter so much because even you talk about the ripple effect and because you put pen to paper, we're, we're having this conversation and now our listeners get to be on that journey with us. And so that just that ripple of you being bold with your pen is now reverberating all the way down, down South, you know, down here to North Carolina uh, and now beyond. I think we have like listenership from four different countries who listen to our podcast. I'm, I'm not sure how they found out about us, but. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> it must be Jess's network because she's got a lot deeper network than I do. So uh, <laughs> needless to say, these ideas, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say these ideas in this conversation, that Ripple is now, you know, it's global. It's global. And it probably was already before you, know, you came onto our, our humble podcast. But we're grateful. We're grateful for your ideas. We're grateful that you'd share them with us and that you you take the time and keep doing what you're doing. And, and we'll all commit to asking why five times in the spaces yeah. that we're in. So thank you yeah. so much. Oh, good. Thank, thank you, you both so much. I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you for all that, that you've shared here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Wow. 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 She was great. She was so great. So I just enjoyed her a great deal. Yes. There is a lot to unpack there as there always is. She is a rock star. I am officially a maybe a part of her fan club. I don't know if she has a, a Facebook group or something that I could join. But well, I'll join. You join, and we can start it if she doesn't have one. That's true. Let's start it. Let's start it because I mean, whoa! <laughs> I yeah. was so good. Yeah. So I mean, I'm gonna put you on the spot first. So basically, to buy okay. more time to process all because you you take you take the notes, and so I think you can you can get to this maybe quicker. But what? Share with our listeners what what stood out to you most from that comment. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put you on. I'll make you pick one thing. That might be unfair. 
Um, well, what stood out to me was, you know, the conversation around trust it became very emotional for me. And I think it just, I think when she took sort of that topic and started to lay it over this issue of mistrust of organizations and entities with power and funding and overlay that on top of the entrepreneurship community, the public private sector, right? Just within within small communities, just how we engage with each other is really rooted in this mistrust. And that was really hard for me. I, I, I know that. And yet, when I have the opportunity to talk about it, it's really difficult because that's when she went into saying, do you see me? I'm a whole person. I have whole ideas. I have pure intentions. I, you know, <laughs> my motivations are as are as intact and are as clear as someone else who doesn't look like me that is in a position of power, a white man or white, whatever, white woman who's in power. And yet I have to do the following things in order to earn and gain your trust, mm. which is so hard even now to hear this young woman, like she's a young woman in her field, sensing and feeling, you know, in her work and, and how I felt, I feel it just as a black woman generally in, in the ways in which I interact sometimes in business. And so I just, I hated that moment, but I also, and I'm using that word in true life. I hated that moment, but it was one that it's the one that stands out for me because it was the one where I had the most emotional reaction to the statistics in the background and all of the things and the work that she's doing in philanthropy in general and foundation work and all of that, you know, we're, we're, we know about that. And there's, it's that both and stuff, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in that world. And it isn't an indictment necessarily as, and, and in some cases it is, but I'm not talking just generally, this isn't an indictment on philanthropy. This is just a, if we're going to do this thing, let's really, let's really understand why we have to do this thing in the first place. Mm. Right. So I, I don't know. I, you made me go first. And so I went back to how I felt about that call yeah. and about this, about our zoom talk, but generally I love this talk. I, you know, I, I love them all and I just really enjoyed her and I really enjoyed the way she's able to connect those dots and be really clear about her messaging around this work um, and social justice. So I, I look forward to more things more writing, more content from her in the future. Hmm. How about you? What were your what yeah. were your takeaways? Well, I think I, I'm just I'm just sitting with what you just shared because it, it makes me realize so much of what she said around this idea of change being uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, and asking ourselves what has changed in our lives without discomfort, and the, having to start with the fact that I'm going to be uncomfortable and sit with that. I think you're sharing just reminded me that I think we have to realize, and we say this before, I think that she didn't say this specifically, but this is going to play differently for different audience members, right? So mm -hmm. if you are a person of color listening, you're already used to discomfort. You don't need to be taught a history lesson about being uncomfortable. I mean, that, to put it as mildly as possible, right? Right. But I think that she, she didn't say this, but I think that that rings more as a challenge to people who are white of which discomfort is optional um, now not 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 in all places at all times right for all ways but when you talk about whiteness and how it works and the privileges of comfort that come with whiteness in some ways not in all not in all ways right because we know that being white doesn't buffer you against everything doesn't buffer you against getting sick being poor like you i'm not 
I'm not making sweeping generalizations here, but the reality is whiteness comes with comfort and privilege. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to sit differently as it did with me in that conversation. I'm thinking about this idea of leaning into discomfort that I'm, I don't come from a posture of being used to discomfort, but leaning into, I think for me, asking why five times in the spaces that I occupy. Yeah. This, this, her question to me, it was profound of what ideas am I holding around justice in creating a better society where everyone can flourish? You know, how do I translate that to my own universe, my own network, my own family, start where I am? Because we can, we can talk about systemic stuff all you want. That's almost like you can be a cop out sometimes yes. to, to just yeah. sit back and do it now. Because honestly, systemic change is really hard. Yeah, just be educated about it versus yeah, just be, and think about enough, it. But have those hard conversations in my own network. Okay, that's practical. I can do that. And am I willing to to lean into shoulders up meetings and then try to try to practice shoulder down? But I love what she said about tapping into looking backwards. We talk about that a lot in this season. Also, just the history of our ancestors. What sacrifices am I willing to make for future generations? I think about my grandparents. I think about the sacrifices they made when it comes to advancing racial justice. Um, in New Bern, North Carolina, right? So that I could take that baton and run and take it further. And I I want to lean into that history and the way they sacrificed so that I could not see perfectly, but I could see clear more clearly because they ran that race and pushed as far as they could push it to then give me the baton to run and say, go run. And I want to love that that ancestry tie. Yeah. I want to do that for my kids as I know you do too. I want to run the race as far as, as long as hard as we can run it with the cultural limitations and the, the limitations of the moment we're in just so that our kids don't have to go back and make up the ground and run part of their parents' race mm-hmm. that we didn't have the courage to run. Amen. There you go. That's it for me. That was good. Let's go. Okay. Let's go run. Let's go run. Let's pick let's up go. that baton. And let's, let's run. Let's, let's run. Yeah. And I'll see. We'll take a little, we'll take a little rest. Check in with take you. Take a little rest. We'll, we may pick up along the way, right? Drink some water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. But until, until next week, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sit with that question. Yeah. Thanks, friend. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Why trees? Trees is because most people can't see racism. The trees that are here were planted 100 years ago or not. So we can look back and see what racism from 100 years ago looks like today. Trees are the perfect technology to make us happy, healthy, and wealthy. The challenge that we have is that not everybody gets trees. And it's literally along color lines.